0: From Public Radio International, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwin. Water contaminated with lead flowed from taps in Flint, Michigan for over a year until one mom raised the alarm.
1: The World Health Organization recommends that the most you ever drink in water is 10 parts per billion. And the water coming out of her tap was 13,500 parts per billion. This is more than 1,300 times higher than recommended levels two times hazardous waste levels. How it
0: happened and how it could be fixed. Also, bright lights from cities can blot out the stars, but a few pockets of darkness survive.
2: And a lot of visitors will say that it's by far the most exciting and memorable part of their trip. Seeing the Milky Way over my head every night when I slept out or seeing the stars in the dark sky that I've never seen before. That and more this week on Living on
0: Earth. Stick around.
3: Support for Living on Earth comes from United Technologies, innovating to make the world a better, more sustainable place to live.
0: From the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios at the University of Massachusetts, Boston, and PRI, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. The drinking water disaster in Flint, Michigan, began shortly after a change in its source as part of a cost-cutting measure in April of 2014. Residents complained that their tap water suddenly smelled and looked bad, but officials insisted it was safe. Still, Leanne Walters, a mother of four, wasn't convinced, and she started to investigate further. She told Jack Olmstead of GMO Free Radio why she was so worried.
4: My child with a compromised immune system, quit growing. We all developed rashes. We were losing our hair. And... We knew something was wrong, and we kept getting told that, you know, nothing was wrong. And by talking with other families, you know, we we figured out this was going on, not just in my home and not just in the homes that had brown water, but in, you know, all throughout the city, and nobody was listening to us.
0: Leanne Walters' investigations eventually led her to one of the foremost experts on the problem of lead in water, Mark Edwards, a civil and environmental engineering professor at Virginia Tech. He spoke with Living on Earth in 2009 when lead from aging pipes in Washington, D.C. was also leaching into drinking water. Professor Edwards was called in to analyze Flint's water, and he's on the line now from Virginia Tech. Welcome back. Thank you for having me. So, briefly, what has happened in Flint with its water supply?
1: What's happened is an entirely preventable man made disaster that started out by not following federal law that requires addition of a corrosion control chemical to the water supply to protect the iron and lead pipes from corrosion. And this occurred during a switch from Detroit water that the city had been using for a period of decades to Flint River water, which runs through the town. It's a little bit saltier water source, a little bit more corrosive. And once that water was put into the system, a perfect storm of corrosion was unleashed. Red water, iron rust falling off of pipes was coming out of people's taps at very, very high levels. Lead was leaching into the water supply from the earliest days, and pipes were breaking, literally, in the streets due to the high corrosion.
0: Now, there's no way as a consumer to know that there's lead in your water. You might notice all that iron, but you wouldn't notice the lead, right?
1: Well, unfortunately, there is a way, and it's the hard way. A mother found out her child was lead poisoned in Flint and figured out that not only was her water lead high, but that the state claims in writing to the EPA that they had been doing corrosion control was a lie. So you can't see lead. You can't taste it, but a mother could see that her child was not developing normally because she had twins, and one of them was lagging, and uh, she figured it out all on her own. How high were the lead levels in the drinking water there in
0: Flint? Uh, How does that compare to what's legal?
1: When we got involved with this hero mom, as I'll call her, Leanne Walters, we helped her sample her water supply. And it was the worst lead in water I have seen in 25 years in this field.
0: What were the numbers?
1: The World Health Organization recommends that the most you ever drink in water is 10 parts per billion, and the water coming out of her tap was 13,500 parts per billion. This is more than 1,300 times higher than recommended levels, two times hazardous waste levels. And that's not even the worst of it. She flushed her pipe for 20 minutes trying to clean it out. And even after 20 minutes, it was in the thousands of parts per billion.
0: Mark, remind us of the health effects of lead, particularly in unborn and young children.
1: Lead is the best-known neurotoxin. It adversely affects every system in the human body. And for that reason, we pay people and pay them well to protect us from this hazard so that something like Flint would never happen. And unfortunately, they failed miserably at doing their job.
0: So this is a function of not putting this additive into the water that would keep this leaching out of the lead. What exactly was the reasoning of the city, of the government, to take this step? Why not add this?
1: I think probably it started out innocently enough... I think they forgot to follow the law. But months and months into this, I mean, realize this has played out over about 20-month time period. There was warning sign after warning sign that there were serious problems. Residents were getting red-colored water coming out of their taps. They literally could not drink this water, even though they were paying the highest water rates in the nation. Mm. General Motors, which has a plant in Flint, noticed that the water was eating up their car parts and had to stop buying Flint water and switch to a different water source. And the state was claiming all that time that there was nothing wrong at all. And even when they started detecting high lead in the water, and they should have known better, rather than admit that they were breaking the law, which not only they knew, but the EPA regional office knew as well since April of 2015, they didn't tell anybody. And so these outside people were figuring out these problems while the very agencies that we pay to protect us from lead and water were lying to each other in writing. They were telling the public that the water was completely safe. If anyone said anything to the contrary, as we did when we started working with the residents, we were attacked. And in fact, had outside people not gotten involved and exposed this, flint kids would be drinking that water to this day
0: i understand that there was a person who worked at the environmental protection agency the us epa who had spoken out saying that water was unsafe what happened to that person
1: well his name is miguel del toro and he reached out to leanne walters and was the first one to really work with her and figure out that something was amiss in flint and he wrote a report that was very damning. It it noted that Flint was not following federal corrosion control laws, that one child had already been poisoned and that an entire city was in imminent peril. And he leaked that to the press, and instead of taking it seriously, the Michigan State Department of Environmental Quality, and even worse, his boss, A political appointee buried this memo, told him he could not talk to anyone about the Flint situation, and actually went on a campaign to discredit him. What's happened here is a complete failure of our government. In this case, you know, the EPA could have and should have been the heroes. Their employee did this amazing thing to to protect the population, even put his job on the line to do so. And his boss snatched defeat from the jaws of victory and covered this up and sat silently by for about eight, nine months while the city was just on the verge of civil unrest.
0: Mark, I know you've been studying lead and city water supplies for much of your career. I imagine this is the worst case that you have encountered
1: Actually, it's not the worst case that we've seen. The worst case was actually in Washington, D.C., from 2001 to 2004, and it was very similar. The agencies paid to protect us from lead and water, the United States Environmental Protection Agency, they were trying to do something good by changing disinfectants in the water supply, and this new regulation triggered a massive lead contamination event, the worst in modern U.S. history. And I think that the EPA was not used to being the bad guy. And the emails that we uncovered as a result of that investigation showed they knew about this contamination event and hid it from the public for three years until the Washington Post uncovered it, and Washington, D.C. went crazy. And unfortunately, rather than learning from that tragic event, which we now know 10 years later. Thousands of children were lead poisoned. There was higher incidence of miscarriages and fetal death, which is an expected impact of lead and water exposure. And unfortunately, the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and the EPA colluded to completely cover this problem up. They wrote a report at the height of the media outcry that said not a single man, woman, or child had blood lead elevated over the level of concern and that this was all much ado about nothing. Unfortunately, that false statement stood for five years until I wrote a paper in 2009, and there was a congressional hearing that just reamed the CDC for their indefensible scientific reporting. Since that, we have dedicated ourselves to trying to prevent another DC from happening, and unfortunately, we were unsuccessful. What you're seeing unfold in Flint is exactly the same thing that we saw before in Washington, D.C., and No one was ever held accountable for covering up the problem. No one was held accountable for writing falsified scientific reports. And because no one was held accountable, what these agencies learned is nothing.
0: Mark, what do you think it'll cost to clean this situation up?
1: We estimate that the extra damages done to the system are on the order of about $200 million. And that constitutes the damage to the city-owned pipe system and hasn't yet fully accounted for the damage to their home pipe systems. On top of that, you have the human costs, the public health costs of childhood lead poisoning and increased help that these children will need in the years ahead. So the price tag is, is just astronomical. I mean, this is not only a public health disaster. It's one of the worst fiscal decisions I've ever seen. So
0: there are, what, more than 50,000 uh, public drinking water systems around this country How many of them have old lead pipes in them that could leach out lead that would be toxic if the wrong quality of water was passed through them?
1: That's a very good question, and no one has the answer to that. There are estimates that there are as many as 13 million lead pipes that connect homes to water mains across the United States. And while they are concentrated in certain cities and in certain time frames when the house was built— No one really knows where these lead pipes are. So this is a major barrier to fixing this problem because over the years, we've lost track of where these lead pipes are. And there's a good book written on this that called the decision to put these lead pipes in the ground in the first place one of the greatest environmental catastrophes in U.S. history. And unfortunately, we're still dealing with the legacy of that.
0: That was Mark Edwards, an environmental engineering professor at Virginia Tech. We contacted the EPA for comment. They admit they failed to act quickly enough, but also fault state and local officials. Meantime, President Obama has declared a state of emergency, and Michigan Governor Rick Snyder has publicly apologized and promised to fix the problem.
3: Bring me little water, Sylvie. Bring me little water now. Bring me little water every little once in a while.
0: The heavy rains associated with El Nino this winter brought record floods to the Mississippi River basin. Roy Buell is the mayor of Dubuque, Iowa, along the Mississippi. His city didn't experience the devastation of some other cities nearby, but all this rain has him concerned.
5: It is very, very unusual weather that we've been experiencing you know and the amount of rain, the intensity, the uh, the amount of flooding that's occurring up and down the river. this obviously is one of the bigger events that collectively we've seen.
0: Mayor Buell says that many of the residents in his town are connecting the dots between these storms and global warming, and the city is taking steps to become more resilient in the face of increasingly wild weather.
5: As flooding becomes more Severe and unpredictable, we realized that we needed to protect our residents and our infrastructure by making some aggressive changes in our city. Now, the city of Dubuque is working with the Army Corps of Engineers to evaluate the strength and condition of our flood wall or levee, which has protected Dubuque from the Mississippi River since 1965. We're now reviewing overtopping and failure scenarios and exploring how we can mitigate Flooding if the flood wall were to fail uh, due to climate change results uh, and the historic flooding levels that uh, the Mississippi River uh, potentially uh, you know, could have in the city of Dubuque.
0: Dubuque is part of the Mississippi River Cities and Towns Initiative, which seeks to increase collaboration among river communities on ways to adapt to climate change. Mayor Buell joined mayors at the Paris Climate Summit in December to talk with leaders from other river basins around the world. They reached an agreement to work together.
5: And uh, we actually got uh, 15 uh, basins to sign on to that agreement to work together, you know, to create resiliency and some best practices, knowing full well that the Mississippi River is the major food basket of the world. And that population increases uh, over the next uh, 20 years when we hit nine and a half billion people. Those people are going to have to be fed. So we're trying to work with them to create some global cooperation around water and food security.
0: That's Dubuque Mayor Ray Buell. Whether it's heavy ice and snow or torrential rains, the extreme weather events around the world linked to El Nino don't always come out of the blue. Scientists have been warning of the possibility of a strong El Nino since 2014, and such warnings, if heeded, can help communities cope. We often turn to distinguished scientist Kevin Trenberth of the National Center for Atmospheric Research to talk about El Nino's impact around the world. Kevin, welcome back to Living on Earth. Thanks for having me. First, just remind us of the El Nino phenomenon. People use this phrase all the time, but what exactly is it?
6: It really refers to a warming of the central and eastern Pacific. Prior to an El Nino, there is a buildup of heat in the ocean, ocean heat content and higher sea levels in the western tropical Pacific. And then during El Nino, that heat spreads across the Pacific. It comes back into the atmosphere, mainly in the form of, well, cooling the ocean, but evaporative cooling of the ocean and Then moistening of the atmosphere and then that moisture gets caught up in weather systems and invigorates weather systems around the world and especially in the Pacific. And that gives back the heat to the atmosphere that went into evaporating the moisture in the first place. And so there's a mini global warming in the latter stages of an El Nino event. And so this El Nino has also contributed to 2015 being the warmest year on record, actually by far. So what are
0: the major weather effects from this strong El Nino that we're in the middle of right now?
6: Starting last summer in particular, and in March of 2015, there was a major hurricane or or cyclone that went through Vanuatu in the southern hemisphere. And that was only enabled by El Nino conditions. It would not have happened without El Nino. And then In the summertime in the Northern Hemisphere, we saw a record number of both hurricanes and typhoons and a tremendous amount of damage in various places. The Philippines, Japan, China, Taiwan, Vietnam, and so on. The largest number of category four and five storms on record by a substantial amount. And it it got a considerable boost from the El Nino phenomenon. Then the patterns of weather begin to change. And so there's been a major drought in Indonesia with a tremendous number of wildfires. And there are clear connections into North America, into the United States. And so the sort of thing that we saw recently with major flooding especially focused on Missouri and very wet conditions in November and December as a whole so November and December as a whole in the state of Missouri had three times their normal rainfall and the previous for those two months and the previous record was about twice the normal amount it's just so
0: overwhelming that list of the phenomena associated with el nino
6: Well, one of the other things that we see, of course, is that there are storms that start to barrel into California. And so we've had some substantial rains in Southern California. And at the moment, the focus is a bit more on Northern California and even Washington and Oregon. And there's been flooding in those areas. And it's not as if they're not accustomed to having heavy rains, but the rains that are coming off of the Pacific this year are quite prodigious.
0: Now, In the West, where there's been such a horrible drought, to what extent does this El Nino now bring relief, do you think?
6: Well, it should bring substantial relief. And, of course, it will bring relief to agriculture and the phenomena that are important for the upper part of the soil layers and so on. The real issue that people talk about is the storage of water in reservoirs and rivers and lakes. And one of the things that has happened in recent times is the mining of groundwater. And so in some parts in Central California, the ground has actually sunk as a result of the pulling out of the groundwater. And unfortunately, a lot of that seems to be irreversible. And so you can't put the water back very easily. And unfortunately, California has developed a system where they try to protect against floods. And so a lot of the water that occurred in Southern California has gone into the Los Angeles River and it's run out to sea instead of going back into the ground where it could be perhaps mined again in in the future. And so this relates to how we work with water in the United States. There's one group that is designed to prevent floods, but there's another group who deals with droughts. And these two need to get together so that they save the water from the time when they've got too much for the times when you don't have enough. And that's the thing which is really missing at the moment.
0: That's right. If you were saying back in, uh, in April of 2014, this is a year and a half ago, a little bit longer that we would likely see a fairly intense el nino phenomenon with all this rain that would bring to california so if in fact there were mechanisms to plan for a lot of rain and capture it there would be a fair amount of time you guys are pretty good at predicting this
6: well this is one of the things about the science is that we there is much more notice about the likelihood of el nino occurring and therefore various kinds of activities not only in california but in other places around the world are able to change their activities or plan for this or plan for the risk of wildfire in Australia, for instance. In a number of places around the world, they actually change the crops they grow, the seeds they plant, the fertilizer strategy, the irrigation strategy, managing hydroelectric power in places that water comes and goes and in these kind of events, all of this kind of thing is the sort of thing that can take advantage of good warnings that these kind of events are underway.
0: I really don't want to ask you this question, but I have to. When we look at climate disruption, we look at global warming, we see that it's on the increase. So if this is the way things are now with the El Nino phenomenon, what could we be looking at as the planet gets even warmer?
6: In some sense, what we're seeing around the world right now is an advanced view of the sort of things that we'll see more of in the future. All of the weather systems being somewhat more vigorous than they have been in the past. The risk of both droughts in some regions and flooding in other regions. And of course, this is very difficult to manage for a farmer. It's much tougher on ecosystems and forests in general. And so these are some of the challenges, but taking lessons from these relatively short-term surges where the mini global warming from El Nino goes along with the global warming from increases in greenhouse gases, those two things going together is the sort of thing that creates new records and some things begin to break. Some things
0: begin to break. What do you have in mind?
6: So uh, scientists say... Well, things have gone nonlinear, you know, and so this this is where the case in Missouri is a, is a good example. You know, previously, what what is the average rainfall there in November and December? Somewhere around five inches of rain, and the previous highest was somewhere around ten inches of rain, and in the this past uh, November and December, we're at fifteen inches of rain. I mean, there's no reason to, based on the previous record, to expect that, but suddenly we're jumping to a a whole new arena, and it has consequences, and it's having big consequences now as this slowly unfolds as the Mississippi River rolls this water downstream.
0: How much longer does this El Nino event last, do you think?
6: Well, it looks like this El Nino may have peaked in November in terms of the magnitude of the unusual sea surface temperatures out in the tropical Pacific. And so already it's beginning to fade just a little bit. It's certainly going to be with us through March, but by about April, it's expected that this will be fading quite substantially and it'll be basically gone by about June. And so this is the transition. It's the normal time or the length for an El Nino to last. And so exactly how this plays out in the next few months, given that it's already beginning to fade a little bit, will be interesting to see. But often some of the biggest effects do occur in around February across North America.
0: So let's see. Last time we saw ice storms, we saw crazy uh, water in Florida. Um, So I guess we just have to hang on until this is over, huh?
6: This is indeed one of the risks that because conditions are a bit warmer, they're a bit warmer because of the El Nino, that you have vigorous storms coming across the country, but the ground can still be very cold. And so the risk of uh, an ice storm, a freezing rain storm, is a very real one, and, and this is what happened in 1998, which devastated upper parts of New York State and, uh, and parts of Canada, uh, for instance, and, and that is certainly one of the possibilities on the cards.
0: Kevin Trenberth is a distinguished senior scientist at the National Center for Atmospheric Research in Boulder, Colorado. Kevin, thanks so much for taking the time with us today.
6: You're most welcome.
0: Time to catch up again with Peter Dykstra and go beyond the headlines. Peter is with Environmental Health News, EHN.org, and the Daily Climate.org, and joins us on the line from Conyers, Georgia. So, how are you, Peter?
7: I'm doing all right, Steve. How about you? Good. Uh, You know, that drinking water crisis you were talking about earlier uh, deserves a little bit more mention. The situation in Flint, Michigan, is both a human tragedy and a political scandal. Governor Snyder is taking the heat. There are calls for his resignation. The state agency is being pummeled for moving too slowly. And the federal EPA said they didn't do anything because they thought the state was going to do something.
0: Okay, so that's blaming. But, you know, that blame game only gets you so far.
7: Well, yeah, you're right. And that, that's why I want to focus on a couple of heroes in this horrible situation. And one of them is a journalist named Kurt Guyette. He's a longtime Michigan investigative reporter. He took a job last year with an advocacy group, the Michigan ACLU, and started going door to door with volunteers to collect water samples for testing. And while Kurt Gayette and his volunteers were doing that, there was a pediatrician in Flint named Dr. Mona Hannah-Attisha. She started testing blood lead levels in Flint's kids. The two of them put their data together and it pointed to a huge problem and an eventual scandal.
0: So give credit where credit is due, but I sense that you think that maybe there's still some blame to go around.
7: Yeah, let me let me get one little bit of the blame game here. When this deal came together to bring cheaper local water to the residents of Flint, Michigan, the Flint Journal, the local newspaper, wrote an editorial saying it was a wonderful deal. Uh, They said it was carefully vetted. They said, quote, the changeover will be virtually unnoticeable. And they also said this is a new direction for Flint.
0: (laughs) Maybe a new direction, but ouch. Okay, what else are we going to talk about today?
7: I want to talk about a move in the state of Nevada that made kneecap the booming rooftop solar business that's been going on in that state and across the country. How so? The state public utility commission voted to triple the amount that rooftop solar owners would have to pay to the state's biggest utility, NV Energy, in order to have a way to generate their own homegrown power. And at the same time, they would cut the fees that the utility pays back to rooftop solar owners when those solar owners can move electricity to the bigger grid.
1: You're
0: right, that would knock rooftop solar right out of the business. So what was the reason of the Public Utilities Commission for this?
7: The utility makes less money on homegrown electricity. About 63 percent of the electricity in the state of Nevada comes from natural gas. The governor of the state of Nevada, Brian Sandoval, who's a Republican, warned the utility commission that there are a lot of new jobs coming online due to solar. And big solar companies like SolarCity have threatened to either move out or sue.
0: So we'll keep an eye on that one. Uh, Let's turn a leaf now on the history calendar. Peter, what do you see?
7: I got something for you. It's a little bit lighter and maybe even a little tipsy. It was two years ago this week that a fine was levied for one of the world's most disastrous whiskey spills in a river. It took place in the Air River in Scotland. A tanker truck full of whiskey arrived at a bonded warehouse. There was a combination of errors. There were human errors. There were computer errors. They think it was about five. Thousand liters of 134 proof whiskey, and since this was Scotland, you can probably figure out what kind of whiskey it was. The warehouse was eventually fined twelve thousand pounds, which is about twenty thousand dollars
0: for scotching the river
7: scotching the river. And that $12,000 fine assumed some environmental damage, but nobody ever really took the time to figure out if there was any environmental damage. So I started looking at some of the flow data from the Air River that's available uh, online. Mm -hmm. Uh, The amount of water that goes through that river, uh, about 4.7 million gallons of water an hour, 5,000 liters of scotch whiskey in there would make the weakest $20,000 scotch and water ever.
0: <laughs> Reminds me of what you can get served in certain establishments, Peter. But somebody must be upset that all that whiskey is sleeping with fishes.
7: Yeah, it's uh, it, it, it's a terrible, terrible waste.
0: Peter dyksters with Environmental Health News. That's ehn.org, thedailyclimate.org. And there's more on these stories at our website, LOE.org. Peter, thanks so much for taking the time with us today. Talk to you next time.
7: All right, Steve, thanks a lot. We'll talk to you soon.
0: Coming up, in search of the dark and the distant stars it reveals. That's just ahead on Living on Earth. Stay tuned.
3: Funding for Living on Earth comes from United Technologies, a provider to the aerospace and building systems industries worldwide. UTC Building and Industrial Systems provides building technologies and supplies container refrigeration systems that transport and preserve food and medicine with brands such as Otis, Carrier, Chubb, Edwards, and KIDA. This is PRI, Public Radio International.
0: It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. If you are a stargazer and are able to see the stars where you live, the dawn skies offer a spectacular treat at the moment. Five planets are lined up diagonally for the first time in over a decade. Mercury, Venus, Mars, Saturn, and Jupiter. Of course, more than half of the world's population now lives in cities, and the glaring lights increasingly make the sky too bright to see the stars. That's a concern for Paul Bogart, who wrote the book End of Night, which examines the increasing use of light for public safety, which results in light pollution blanketing our world and blotting out the heavens. He spoke with Living on Earth's Helen Palmer.
8: Now, one of the reasons I think that people have embraced light is basically this fear of the dark. Do you think that's really what's at the base of this growth in light?
9: Well, you know, it's a complex uh, problem, a complex issue, but I do think that we have a basic fear of the dark. I I sometimes laugh because I admit in the book that I'm afraid of the dark and people think you're the guy who wrote the book on the value of darkness. How can you be afraid of the dark? But I think it's a perfectly natural thing to be afraid of the dark. I think what's not natural is to then compensate for that fear by trying to light up our nights as bright as our days and to think that we can somehow, you know, do away with darkness by turning up the lights ever brighter.
8: But I think there is this feeling that with light will come security. You know, you you have this feeling of the murderer or the thief sort of like lurking in the darkness. And so obviously we turn on the lights to become more safe. Has it made us in that way more safe or does more light make us more safe?
9: Yeah, sure. I think that's really at the heart of it. And when you ask people, you know, do we need all this light? People say oftentimes, well, yeah, we need it for safety and security. But the truth is that, well, some light can help us be more safe and secure. And no one's suggesting that we just turn off all the lights. But what people are suggesting is that we don't need all this light for safety and security. And that, in fact, when you have ever more light, you often create more problems than solutions. Oftentimes, when you have lights that are too bright, they cast shadows where the bad guys can hide. There's so much light in our nights that are glaring light that make it hard for us to see. And and then also, too much light tends to create the illusion of safety. We think we can be reckless purely because it's light out. And that's obviously not the case.
8: So it basically destroys our night vision as well.
9: Yeah, it really does. I mean, One of the most startling estimates that I found when I was doing the research for the book is that... Some 40% of Americans and Western Europeans never experience or rarely experience night vision. We're in the light so much that our eyes never switch to night vision.
8: You told that very sad story of somebody saying, what are all those white dots up in the sky?
9: <laughs> exactly, and... You know, if you live in a major uh, urban area, major city, you're not seeing anything close to the night sky that we ought to be able to see. And I had several nights when I was traveling for the book where, say, I was standing on a bridge in London and I looked up and I could count about 20 stars. And that's just, that's nothing when it comes to the night sky.
8: Well, it's not only our inability to see the stars that's the problem. You, you actually point out that this excess light is actually making us sick.
9: We're learning more and more. Uh, More and more research is showing us that light at night, in fact, is impacting our physical health. And in three primary ways, it is interrupting our sleep and contributing to sleep disorders, which are tied to every major disease that we're dealing with now. It's confusing our circadian rhythms, those internal rhythms that orchestrate our body's health. And then perhaps most troubling, it's impeding the production of the hormone melatonin. Melatonin is only produced in the dark. And what scientists are finding is that a lack of melatonin in our bloodstream is linked to an increased risk for breast and prostate cancer. So nobody's saying, you know, that, yet yeah, that light at night gives you cancer. But what everyone I talk to did say was, we've evolved in bright days and dark nights just like all life on Earth, and we need both for optimal health. To think that we can simply flood our nights with uh, artificial light and have it not have an effect on our health is probably foolish.
8: Obviously, one one thing that I know night workers complain of is that they all put on weight. It seems to somehow, in fact, really up- upset the circadian rhythms in terms of digestion as well.
9: Yeah, it really does, and I think You know, the folks that are bearing the brunt of all this light, probably most directly right now, are those people who are working uh, the night shift or rotating shifts. And that happens to be more and more of us. And too often, it's the poor folks who need to work at night. But I talked to a number of folks who work the night shift who have put on weight and just say it's really, really difficult to live this way. You feel exhausted all the time. You feel tired all the time. And they can sense that it isn't right, but they have to do it.
8: Well, even if we actually sleep in a theoretical dark room, there are all these sort of like LED lights. There's little lights on the, uh, the alarm clocks by our bed, there the lights on our watches, the lights on our, uh, on our phones. It's amazing if you just look around the bedroom. Theoretically, the dark bedroom, what's still on?
9: <laughs> it's true. We have lots of little lights. And and I think, though, that, you know, a lot of folks aren't even aware of how important it is to be sleeping in the dark, to pull those shades completely shut and to turn off the lights in the hall room and to, you know, if you get up to use the bathroom in the middle of the night, to not turn that bright light on. Um, one thing that researchers are seeing a lot of is that people are doing a lot of reading on the computer or on the, on the tablet, uh, their phone, what have you right up to the time they turn off the light and go to sleep at night. And this keeps the production of melatonin from starting when it normally should. What scientists are finding is that it's the blue light in the screen that's having the most uh, negative effect on our physical health. And, you know, a lot of the new LEDs that we're seeing in our streetlights and in a lot of our gadgets and that kind of thing are really heavy with this blue-rich white light that we really shouldn't be seeing in the night.
8: One of the things you're doing in your book is going around searching out these advocates for for dark skies across the world, actually. There seem to be many of them. Um, What do they advise or could we basically do to reverse this trend of ever brighter, ever brighter, ever more destructive?
9: Well, you know, I'm optimistic about it. I think there's a lot that we can do. And it starts with the way that we use light. And I like to say that, you know, light at night is not the problem. It's how we use it. So that is true in our homes where we can have light that is shining only downward. We can turn off our lights when we go to bed. It continues into our communities where we can have a lighting ordinance in our communities that will Describe the kind of night that we want to have in the places that we live. Most of us don't want to live in places with glaring, super bright, ugly lights. We prefer to have lighting that is subtle and nuanced and maybe even beautiful, even as it provides us with the safety and security that we know we want. So from the individual all the way up to the community and even on the statewide level, there are things we can do right now to begin to control this.
8: Things like downward pointing streetlights and stuff like that you're talking about?
9: Absolutely. You know, one of the biggest problems that we have with our lighting, one of the, I guess, basic problems is that we have light shooting in all directions right now. And we have light that's being sent straight into the sky. We have light that's being shined into our eyes as we drive down a street. And we have too much light that's just shining from one neighbor or one street light into our houses. And none of that light is doing any good. In fact, it's just all wasted light. So simply by directing our light downward just to where we need it, we can have a huge positive impact.
0: Paul Bogart wrote the book End of Night. He teaches English at James Madison University in Virginia and spoke with Living on Earth's Helen Palmer. Some conservationists are also now counting dark skies among other threatened resources and celebrating them where they still persist. Canyon Lands National Park in Utah was recently named an International Dark Skies Park, and the Park Service is working to get a similar designation for nearby Arches National Park. Living on Earth's Emmett Fitzgerald went to see for himself. Tonight isn't really the best night to see the stars.
4: The moon is two-thirds full above Arches National Park in eastern Utah, but that hasn't deterred my guide.
2: My name's Nate Ament. I'm the Colorado Plateau Dark Skies Coordinator with the National Park Service in Moab, Utah. We're headed towards the north window. We're going to do some stargazing and uh, look at the landscape under the moonlight here.
4: This park is named after its signature red rock arches, or windows, so massive you could drive a fire truck under them. Nate's been out here countless nights, but he says
2: it still feels like the surface of Mars. I came out here for the first time when I was a kid, and, and this was just magic land to me. I mean, it still is, but, um, you know, I just didn't even know that landforms like this existed, and it just boggled my mind, you know. <laughs> it's totally otherworldly.
4: Nate points out the spot where the writer Edward Abbey parked his trailer when he worked for the National Park Service here in 1956 and 57. Abbey's field notes from that stint form the basis of his iconic book, Desert Solitaire. Abbey wrote of his dark nights and arches, "'Leaving the flashlight in my pocket where it belongs, I remain a part of the environment I walk through, and my vision, though limited, has no sharp or definite boundary. The night flows back. The mighty stillness embraces and includes me. I can see the stars again, and the world of starlight. We pass the north window, a giant eye-shaped hole in the rock wall, and head south. Nate's wearing a headlamp tonight,
2: and unlike Abby's flashlight, it's red. Uh, red light actually preserves your night vision. Your eyes have to adapt to the darkness, and when you use a red light, it doesn't uh, break down the chemical inside your eyes that allows you to see better in the night, so um, we use a red light for stargazing so we can preserve our night vision. People aren't used to it. Um, it's really interesting when you get them out in a really dark place and, and let them dark adapt, you, you get these people saying, wow, I've, I've never seen the stars like this before and I've never seen those kind of colors in the night sky because they took the time to, to let their eyes adapt.
4: We arrive at the south window and Nate turns off the headlamp. The moon is bright casting a silver glow across the
2: sky, but there's still plenty to see. So if you look straight above us here, that is three stars right there, Altair, Deneb, and Vega, and those three make up the summer triangle. Cassiopeia is actually just behind the south window here. We're looking through the south window into the cosmos beyond, and we can see the constellation Cassiopeia. If it was just a little bit lower, we'd be able to look just to the right of Cassiopeia and see just this faint little wisp of light, and that's actually the Andromeda Galaxy, which is our closest neighbor. Um, a little bit lower on the horizon, we'd be able to see Sagittarius, which is the, um, if you will, it's like the teapot, if some people think of it that way. And the steam coming out of the teapot is the core of the Milky Way, it's the center of our galaxy. and. Um, If the moon wasn't out and the rock wasn't in the way, we could see that right now.
4: It's hard to complain about this rock, though. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I
2: mean, that's the, the perfect picture frame for the cosmos right there. You can't really complain about that.
4: For years, the National Park Service has worked to protect some of the most beautiful views in the country. Sentinel Dome at Yosemite, the old faithful geyser at Yellowstone, the Grand Canyon. Nate's job is to protect the increasingly rare view of a clear night sky.
2: So the, the idea goes back um, quite a ways to uh, several rangers in the National Park Service who were really enthusiastic about getting people out under the night skies. And they wanted to know where the really dark places were, and they also wanted to know how to preserve those really dark places. And so the Natural Skies
4: and Night Sounds Division of the National Park Service was born.
2: And they measure how dark the skies are in parks. I think they've taken measurements in over 400 400 locations. So, um, you know, we have this really rich data set of darkness all over the uh, entire country.
4: One metric for darkness is called the Bortle scale, and it rates the sky from one to nine.
2: Where we are right now, because of the light pollution from Grand Junction and Moab, we're in a Bortle class three. Whereas if you went into the middle of New York City, It's a Bordel Class 9, which is the other end of the spectrum. You know, the brightest of the bright. You can't really see any stars. Humans have lit up so much of the world
4: that it's almost impossible to find a Bordel Class 1 anymore. But some of the darkest skies in the country are right here at the Four Corners, where Utah, Colorado, Arizona, and New Mexico meet on the high desert of the Colorado Plateau. Canyonlands National Park, just down the road from Arches, has been measured at a Bortle Class Two, and was recently named an International Dark Skies Park. It's the seventh on the Colorado Plateau to get that honor.
2: And that's by far the highest concentration of these parks in the entire world. There's only 28 worldwide, so you know we have seven of them right here on the Colorado Plateau.
4: With so much federally protected land on the Plateau, Nate says there's a chance to preserve a really large swath of darkness right in the heart of the West. He works with towns like Moab to cut unnecessary lighting and introduce technologies like light shields that reduce sky glow. Smart lighting isn't really a hard sell when you explain how much money it can save. One town that's been particularly forward-thinking about its lights is Flagstaff, Arizona.
2: Um, There's one study that estimates uh, if if the entire state of Arizona were to take up uh, Flagstaff's lighting practices, it could save the entire state about $30 million per year. So, um, you know, that that gets people's attention.
4: (laughs) Nate says that reducing light pollution isn't just about aesthetics. There's a growing medical consensus that overexposure to artificial light can disrupt human circadian rhythms and may even contribute to health problems like diabetes and certain cancers. And the excess light
2: impacts wildlife as well. There's a lot of documented cases of bird migrations being disrupted by really bright white lights, um, bats have their predator-prey cycles disrupted because insects flock to to these really bright white lights, and um, there's a lot of interference in in other predator-prey relationships that can be really disruptive to certain ecosystems. But more than anything else, Nate just wants to give the many people who
4: live in overlit cities a shot at seeing the night sky as Edward Abbey would have seen it.
2: Two-thirds of the people in the world can't see the Milky Way from where they live. And so you, you get an idea of how rare it is to come out and see these dark skies in places like arches and canyon lands. Um, and you can see why people come from all over the world to, to see them. And a lot of visitors will say that it's by far the most exciting and, and memorable part of their trip. When they go around the camp and ask, what was your favorite experience? What, what will you remember most? People say, seeing the Milky Way over my head every night when I slept out are seeing the ska- the stars in the dark sky that I've never seen before.
4: As we head back, we come across two men with binoculars looking up at the sky. Ken and Robert are East Coast friends on a road trip through the West.
9: We came out because we were looking for pitch dark, you know. The, the moon <laughs> is kind
1: of spoiling a little bit, although it's beautiful too, but yeah, we wanted to see as many stars as we could. Clear, no moisture. It's it's beautiful. Yeah. You know, we were looking we're, we weren't going to leave here without coming out here at night.
4: Ken and Robert aren't the only ones out here tonight. Flashlights held by stargazers flicker on and off throughout the park. Robert says he really appreciates that Arches keeps the gates open after hours. This view is part of why he made this trip in the first place.
1: Oh, it's just cool. I mean, when you can, when it gets so dark that you can see the Milky Way clear, you know, just it, you look, how, look at how far away you're looking. Uh, you think about little things like how long it took that light to get here, stuff like that.
4: As we walk back to the car, Nate's smiling.
2: Yeah, it's, it's super gratifying, you know, to see somebody and just talk to them, and they're from out of town, and what brings you out here? Well, came out here for the dark skies and the stars, you know, and it's like, yes, yeah. I'm doing my job, all right. Right,
4: totally. <laughs> In the 20th century, conservationists like Ed Abbey worked tirelessly to protect the air and water and wildlife in parks like this one. And now Nate Amon is adding a resource for the 21st century to that list. A clear night sky like this one, spread out from horizon to horizon. For Living on Earth, this is Emmett Fitzgerald in Arches National Park.
0: On Earth is produced by the World Media Foundation. Our crew includes Naomi Ehrenberg, Bobby Bascom, Emma Fitzgerald, Lauren Hinkle, Helen Palmer, Adelaide Chen, Jenny Doring, John Duff, Amber Rodriguez, Jamie Kaiser, and Jennifer Marquis. Tom Tiger engineered our show with help from John Gesso, Jake Rigo, and Noel Flatt. Allison Liererstein composed our themes. You can find us anytime at LOE.org, and like us, please, on our Facebook. It's PRI's Living on Earth, and we tweet from at Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood, Thanks for listening.
3: Funding for Living on Earth comes from you, our listeners, and from the University of Massachusetts Boston, in association with its School for the Environment, developing the next generation of environmental leaders, and from the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment, supporting strategic communications and collaboration in solving the world's most pressing environmental problems, and Gilman Ordway for coverage of conservation and environmental change. Also from SolarCity, America's solar power provider. SolarCity is dedicated to revolutionizing the way energy is delivered by giving customers a renewable alternative to fossil fuels. Information at 888-997-1703. That's 888-997-1703. PRI, Public Radio International.